So we're continuing our series through the letters to the churches. And uh, we're just going to today, um, because I bit off way more than I can chew with this text, um, we're just going to split it into two. And so uh, this is kind of part one of the church in Thyatira. And uh, we'll mostly be focusing upon uh, the first half of this. So basically up until uh, verse 23. Um, so sort of the warnings. So this is going to be kind of the grim uh, part one. And then part two will be more of the promises that we have in the second half. Uh, so let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Our Father in heaven, would you speak to us now by your Holy Spirit and, and illuminate Christ to us and also warn us of the dangers of seductive influences in our life that draw us into things like immorality and idolatry and that take away our devotion that should be wholeheartedly given to you. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1929, a man named Edward Bernays changed the world of marketing forever. So in the 1920s, it was uh, considered quite inappropriate for women to smoke cigarettes. And the American tobacco company realized very quickly that they were losing half of their potential market. And so they wanted to solve that problem. And so they hired Edward Bernays because Edward Bernays was actually the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And so he used uh, psychoanalysis in marketing. And Freud had this idea that people were driven by irrational desires. And uh, Bernays wanted to capitalize on that with marketing. So the American Tobacco Company and Edward Bernays partnered together. And uh, in the 1929 Easter parade, Edward Bernays hired several rather good looking women to uh, walk in the parade and smoke cigarettes. And he also hired photographers, his own photographers who were prepared to capture these women smoking in the Easter parade in very, uh, in an alluring way in quite a seductive way and to have them in, you know, very photogenic areas and, and, and smoking cigarettes. And they, they tied that with the way they marketed it was this was an emancipating moment, a breakthrough for women who previously were, were not allowed to actually smoke or at least socially it was unacceptable. And so they took these beautiful pictures of the women smoking and powerful pictures and marketed it as a breakthrough for women, emancipating women, letting them smoke. And very soon over the next few years, millions of women who previously had no desire to smoke a cigarette, all of a sudden started smoking cigarettes because they wanted to join in on this emancipating breakthrough. Of course, the American Tobacco Company one could argue probably could care less whether uh, women were actually emancipated from social stigmas. Really, they were happy to capitalize on millions of uh, other people who were not at reach of their market. And so there was this sort of seductive marketing campaign that actually broke through and, and people who previously had no desire for something all of a sudden had this deep desire 
for ironically something that would be detrimental to their health. And this is actually what this world does. That, that idea of marketing has, is just pervasive now in this world that we live in, this water that we swim in, it seductively creates desires within us constantly. And those desires actually lead us further and further away from wholehearted devotion to Christ. They actually lead us on an unquenchable journey of satisfaction because those things can never satisfy us like the all-satisfying God, which we were created to be in communion with and find deep and eternal satisfaction. And this is very relevant because this is what Jesus is combating here in the church at Thyatira. There is a seductive teaching that is going on by this figure called Jezebel who is seducing the church into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols, which I would call misplaced devotion. They're misplacing their devotion and giving it to other things. And so as we look at this text from the start, from verse 18, we read Jesus give his introduction and he introduces himself as the one with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. So these eyes like a flame of fire portray both the holiness of Christ. Fire is often a, um, a symbol of God's holiness. You think of the burning bush and um, the uh, other um, fire uh, themes throughout the Old Testament. It was always portraying holiness, but also God's hatred of sin, um, such as his holiness that he cannot actually be near. So um, the, the other thing is it gives this picture. If you just read this and um, uh, understand this imagery, it gives this very clear picture of Christ's piercing gaze, like eyes like a flame of fire, piercing and scraping away all of the disguises and fronts that we may put on in ourselves and piercing deep into our hearts, eyes like a flame of fire, piercing into the uh, the depths of humanity's hearts and revealing them for what they are. And finally, feet like burnished bronze give this bronze give this idea of uh, Christ's immovable presence, uh, his um, firm stance in his position. And this is the one who is speaking to us now. So this is the introduction he gives, which should kind of put us in a quite a trembling position, ready to hear from this person. And in verse 19, Christ commends the church at Thyatira for their works, love, faith, service, and patient endurance. And if you've been with us from the beginning, you would probably hear similar themes to the church at Ephesus, who were commended for their uh, works, toil, and patient endurance. So there's actually a lot of similar themes here to the church at Ephesus, who were commended for this, and Thyatira is also commended, but there's going to be a difference in trajectory. So Ephesus were commended for their works, their toil, and their patient endurance, which showed itself in doctrinal diligence. But the problem was that their trajectory was on the downward. So they had lost their first love. They had abandoned their first love and Christ rebukes them for that. Whereas the church in Thyatira actually is on the right trajectory. So Jesus actually says, as for your latter works, 
Well, they are better than your first. So you are actually on this good trajectory. So for Ephesus, uh, you might remember that um, they were actually commended for their hatred for sin. So Jesus actually says uh, to the church at Ephesus, um, you, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, well done, so do I. So this is what they were commended for, this kind of doctrinal diligence, this concern for inner purity, right? Whereas the church in Thyatira has a similar problem to Pergamum, which we went through last time, which did not have a concern for inner purity. So this is kind of where the trajectory starts to go down for Thyatira. So Thyatira, uh, they are growing well in their outward witness, but they are lapsing in their inner witness. They are lapsing in their inner concern for purity within the church, which is what we're going to basically talk about today. Now, just to, to recap on uh, what we went through in Ephesus, which will be a, a theme that I think we should keep at the forefront of our minds. If you can remember when we uh, spoke about how to keep ourselves in the love, in our first love, how to keep ourselves. And there are spiritual rhythms that we should be in of reflection, remembering and responding. So we reflect upon our spiritual location. We reflect upon our lives. We reflect upon whether we have been showing grace toward others. We reflect upon whether we have been short with others. How have we individually and corporately actually been reflecting the self-giving love of God to others? So we need to be in practices of reflection. And then we remember the place of grace. So we remember that we were dead in trespasses and sins. By nature, we were children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We're always remembering that place of grace that actually we did nothing to deserve this. Though we, upon reflecting upon our spiritual location, we may be off. We remember, okay, the way that we were saved was never through us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but actually by us just sitting in awe of this grace and this mercy that's been poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. So we remember that place of grace and then we respond in faithful obedience. We respond knowing that that grace that saved us actually empowers us to live in a way that is pleasing toward God because his grace not only saves, but it, like it says in Titus, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Grace teaches us to actually live in a way that pursues Christ, that pursues holiness. And this is important because this will come up again later in the sermon, but that practice of reflection, remembering and responding is a spiritual rhythm that we should have constantly in our lives. So back to this issue here in Thyatira where they uh, are on a worrying trajectory of a lack of concern. If you remember from two weeks ago, I spoke about the sin of tolerance, where there is actually a sin of tolerance, where uh, tolerance is not good if we are tolerating wicked and evil, if we're tolerating false teaching, if we're tolerating sin in the community without any repentance. That's actually something that Jesus rebukes here. So if you look in the text, 
he says from verse 20, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So there is this sin of toleration that we should be aware of. And so the issue at hand is actually this seductive spirit that is causing people to enter into this sin of toleration, to tolerate wickedness, to actually be drawn towards immorality and idolatry. And this is what I would call misplaced devotion. So this is the key issue that I want to deal with today. So what we're going to do is look at this idea of who Jezebel was, what it would have meant to those in the first century, and then perhaps what the Jezebel of the 21st century is, and then look at three main seductive influences that are kind of the modern day sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols that we should be aware of. And um, uh, yeah, we will just kind of look at those three areas of um, seductive influences and then look at how actually we need to be captivated by Christ to stay away from those. So firstly, the Jezebel of the first century. So if you uh, remember back to 1 Kings, uh, in chapter 16 and 21, this is kind of the story of Israel's history. And uh, this Jezebel here, what it probably would have meant to those in the first century is something both literal and figurative. And so there was a literal Jezebel that we read about in the Old Testament. She was the wife of King Ahab and she was quite a wicked woman. So uh, Jezebel, if you remember, probably most of you do, the prophet Elijah. She was around the time of the prophet Elijah. And Jezebel actually killed a whole bunch of the true prophets of Israel. She cut them off and led people into the false worship. I'm just going to open this window a bit. Led people into the false worship of Baal. And so she cut off all of the true prophets and she led people into false prophets and false worship. And she also, on one account, actually killed an innocent man named Naboth who had a vineyard. And uh, Ahab wanted to buy his vineyard and Naboth said no. And then Jezebel got all upset about that. And then she wrote a letter deceiving people, actually writing in the king's name, and then ended up getting two people to actually um, bring false charges against Naboth. And long story short, he ended up dying. And Jezebel ended up getting her field. So Jezebel both kills the true prophets of the land and she deceives people. And here in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is describing Jezebel as someone who calls herself a prophet and deceives people into practicing sexual immorality and idolatry. So Jezebel, though a literal figure, is also symbolic of everything that seduces us, everything that sets itself up against God and actually seduces us into devotion anywhere other than to the God of heaven and earth. And in this scenario here in the first century, it led to them eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. And uh, just briefly, it's important to understand how this is tied up with first century pagan Roman worship. So it was very normal in the first century to go to a temple and to worship the God and uh, basically just have a big sexual orgy as part of worship. 
And that was just kind of normal for their pagan worship. And so if you were going to go to the temple, it was normal to actually be conducting sexual acts as a form of worship to the people. So naturally, if, if some of these people who were starting to follow Christ were drawn to the Roman worship, it would have been very easy for them to commit literal acts of sexual immorality. But it seems that perhaps the actual concern here is more the metaphorical sexual immorality of we as the bride of Christ and Christ as our groom. And actually any form of misplaced devotion is really a form of committing adultery with our groom, with Christ. And so this sexual immorality, both that could have been literal, is really more metaphorical of people uh, ignoring their devotion to Christ and giving themselves over to pagan worship. And it seems that this is in view because in verse 22, Jesus warns those who commit adultery with her, with Jezebel, that he will throw them into great tribulation. Now, there could have been a, a figure in the first century called Jezebel, but it seems more than likely those who commit adultery with her, those who no longer follow me wholeheartedly, who give in to this sin of toleration and they actually give themselves over to pagan worship, they are actually committing adultery through this sexual immorality. And this is what happens when we misplace our devotion, when we give our attention to other things in place of Christ. Now, uh, food sacrificed to idols is kind of a difficult thing because I don't know about you, but I haven't really been to a dinner party where my host has sacrificed an animal to a god. Maybe the closest thing is where you might go somewhere and they're giving a toast in honor of a football team or something like that. And people really do worship football teams. So that comes quite close, but it's probably not the same as actually eating food sacrifice to idols. So it's probably a, a difficult thing for us to understand. So you might be wondering, how do we actually apply this to us today? What are the, what are the uh, foods that are sacrificed to idols in our day that we should be aware of? And what are these acts of sexual immorality? And so this is uh, largely where we're going to spend our time today. So the Jezebel of the 21st century. So back to, to our time. What is the Jezebel of the 21st century? If uh, you remember, Jezebel is, is symbolic of anything in this world which seduces us and seduces our devotion so that we would give it to that. And really a simple way to think about devotion is what do you think about most? What captivates you? What do you spend your time doing? Where does your mind go? What are you actually given over to? That is what you are devoted to. If uh, I would like to think that in a way I am devoted to my wife as serving her and loving her, and it would be awfully strange if I said that, yet I never spent any time with her and never actually thought about her at all. You would question my devotion. And so for us, are we devoted to Christ? Do we think about him? Do we set our mind upon things above? And there are a few things here which we should be aware of. So uh, the first century, obviously those idols were far um, more visible. There were literal idols, golden calves. Like if I came into your house and saw a big gold calf, it would be pretty easy to say, hey, James, man, I can, you have a problem. 
let's talk. There's a big idol in your living room. The idols of the 21st century are of course more subtle and subversive. They are much more difficult to detect. They exist in our minds everywhere really. And they are seductive, which is what Jesus is warning here. He says of Jezebel, she teaches and seduces, or another word is deceives my servants into committing sexual immorality and idolatry. And so the Jezebel of our day is actually in the subtle and prominent cultural air we breathe. It's, it's subtle because most of our culture doesn't seem all that harmful to us and it's difficult to detect. It's not wrong to go to a football game and to enjoy a, a feat like that. Sometimes there's a fine line between when that can become a form of idolatry and you become a fanatic and you are obsessed with that. It's really difficult to detect. So it's subtle, but it's, it's prominent as well because it is everywhere. We'll see going through these dangers, the, this Jezebel of our coach is everywhere. It is the water we swim in and the air we breathe. And so I want to look at three primary influences for us in this cultural air that we breathe. And they are three M's. So media, materialism and money. I've been reading uh, this book called Competing Spectacles by a guy called Tony Ranke. And uh, the premise of this book is basically that we live in a world of competing spectacles. And uh, the spectacles that he is talking about is kind of those sights or feats that captivate us. Like, um, uh, you know, a century ago when people saw the Titanic on the water and this huge ship that shouldn't, been able, shouldn't have been able to, and unfortunately didn't, uh, last above water. People would have seen that and actually said, wow, what a spectacle. What, a, what an amazing sight, this huge ship. What a spectacle for the ages. So that's the kind of spectacle that he is talking about. So a, a spectacle is anything that captivates us, even like a beautiful sunset. It, it captivates you. And in the world of media, media is designed to do this. Media from both social media to TV series and movies, from uh, clickbait titles on a news article to um, TV series and the drama within it, it is designed to actually captivate you, to take your devotion, to actually take you into this new world. It's designed to take your attention. And so because of that, there is actually a real danger of people living vicariously through these worlds. So this should come as no surprise, but obviously there's a big issue with the world of Instagram or Facebook and people just uh, being drawn into that world and living vicariously through other people or comparing themselves to someone who is only ever gonna post their perfect side. They've got their A game and you don't ever get to see any of what's happening in their real life. And so naturally it leaves you deflated, demoralized and really struggling or how many of us have found ourselves living vicariously through actors in a TV series or a movie? I know I can't actually, like I don't, 
like watching emotional roller coaster things because just my personality, I get drawn in and it actually affects my mood. And for like days, if I watch a sad movie, I'm depressed afterwards for like two days. So I just, I don't need that anymore. So I always read the, Jasmine knows this, I read the synopsis of things and I basically get the whole movie before I watch it to tell if I'm okay. But actually that's the way I guard myself from being captivated by this. And so this author, Tony Ranke says, we escape into lives that are not ours and become adapted to the experience of others. So this is what modern media does, whether Instagram culture or Netflix, it, it shapes our desires and it shapes our thoughts to be like that of those characters in that world. And the dangerous thing is they are almost always fictional. That's not the real world. So Dawson's Creek, for those who are old enough, is generally not how dating and teenage life goes. I don't know any equivalents for younger people. Um, now, of course, it would be wrong for me to say that all media is bad. Media can be informative and helpful, just like um, a TV series can, in moderation can be refreshing and there's nothing wrong with sitting down and watching that. But the problem is if we think they are all harmless, if we think there's no danger to them, then we are actually being deceived. We have to realize that modern media creates countless spectacles. It creates countless spectacles for us that are purely designed to captivate us, to take our attention and give our devotion to that so that we will stay in that world, so that we will tune in for the next episode, the next news article. It is designed to take our devotion and give it to that. And we must never let it take the place of the only true spectacle that is worthy of our attention, and that is Jesus Christ. Secondly, materialism. Now, uh, if you've hung around me long enough, you've probably heard me and probably are sick of me talking about consumerism and materialism, but I'll stop talking about it when it stops becoming a problem. So for now, I'll keep talking about it. There is a book, another book by a guy called James K.A. Smith, who uh, has this book called Cultural Liturgies. And um, a liturgy, which some of you would know, is, is basically an outward practice that shapes us inwardly. So that's why in church we have liturgies or a liturgy, and it's the service, and it's kind of things that we do, outward practices that are there to shape us. And Smith talks about how we live in a world of cultural liturgies. So there's this whole world that is where we're kind of immersed in it, and it's shaping us inwardly. And an example he gives is a shopping mall. So when you go to a shopping mall and you walk around and you see these uh, thousands of advertisements, bright colors, big sale items, people buying things, that is actually a cultural liturgy that you are in that is actually shaping you to think, yes, I can find satisfaction in that new pair of shoes. Or, you know what, I would love a holiday to Aruba. Like, I would, this, that would be fantastic. And the, the thing about this culture is both that we're most of the time completely unaware of how it is shaping us, but also that it is, like that example of Edward Bernays and creating desire within us, that process is actually creating desires within us that were not there beforehand. So one commentator says, the consumer 
does not have to want anything before entering the shopping mall because it is designed to cultivate desire for them. And it provides them with the products they need to consummate the desire it has produced. So he's saying, you don't even have to need to have a desire to go to the, for anything, go to the shopping mall, just go to the shopping mall and it will produce desires for you. And it will give you the product to satisfy that desire. But the reality is it actually only gives you a false sense of satisfaction and it takes you deeper into this place of insatiable desire because you realize Two months later, that pair of shoes didn't actually satisfy you. Now you have a deeper hole for satisfaction. So you just go back to the shopping mall, get some more desire. And it's a, it's a terrible cycle to be in. But that is the water we swim in. And this actually creates misplaced devotion within us where our inherent need for satisfaction, our eternal need for satisfaction is kind of skew if and we, we are deceived and seduced into believing that these materialistic products can satisfy that deep need of satisfaction when the reality is that deep need of satisfaction, that longing, eternity having been placed in the hearts of men can only be satisfied through deep and intimate devotion in our reconciliation with our creator. Thirdly, money. I'll just be very brief with this. It's been said many times, show me your bank account and I will show you what you are devoted to. Show me what you spend your money on and I will show you what you value. So a simple question to ask for us is, do we have a hold of money or does money have a hold of us? So Jesus says very clearly, you cannot serve both God and money because money deceptively places a false idea of godlike power into your hands whether you have money and so you kind of feel like oh i've acquired wealth i have need of nothing those words might sound very familiar in a couple of weeks when we go through laodicea like i have money and i i'm content that's okay or if you don't have money but you're thinking if i could just get like that extra bit of money then i i know my problems would be solved. I'll be able to buy, buy my way out of this or I'll be able to buy that thing. Money has a deceptive influence over us that actually causes us to forget that our God is our all-satisfying Savior who is completely able to provide every single one of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And so as a point of application for this and really for these three points, the practice of financial giving, we, um, if you've been tracking along with us for weeks, we don't actually really talk about financial giving. We don't really have a, a specific time, though that doesn't mean that we don't value it. It just means that it's not generally front and center to our community, but I actually think it's, it's very wrong of us to then neglect it completely. The act of financial giving is a spiritual practice that is essential for us remembering that money does not have a hold of us, but we worship God, our God, who owns everything. So we shouldn't treat the process of giving, of financial giving to the local church as anything really primarily to do with the money in, in and of itself. It is actually a spiritual practice that is shaping us. So in 1 Chronicles 29, David commissions the building of the temple. 
and all of the Israelites come and they give all of these free will offerings and they give an abundance of things. They give a huge amount of things and David prays. And it's actually from the prayer I, I prayed out in um, our time of prayer earlier. And after that, he says, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer this? For all things come from you and of your own hand have we given you. All this abundance that we have provided comes from your hand. So David's saying, we've given, like, and there was a huge amount that were given. And David's kind of like, this seems a bit ridiculous because everything we've given is already from you. It's kind of like when a parent like gives their three-year-old child $5 to go buy them a gift for Father's Day or something. And could you imagine if that child then took that and was like, no, I've earned this. I'm going to go buy what I want. What a terrible thing to do. Like, and that's what it is for us to actually not give. But we should be consciously thinking in our minds as we are giving, Lord, what I'm giving to you, you own. You own everything. What do we have that we have not first received from from the Lord? You own everything, but it's actually a powerful way. And this is why we should be very intentional about this in our giving to, to give. Remember that the money in and of itself is not actually that important, but it is that act of reorientating ourselves away from this society that says that money is the path to success or to freedom. And actually us saying, no, 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 no. I'm giving this because God, you own everything. You don't need this. God doesn't need money. He, 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 he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He, if he were hungry, he wouldn't tell us. He owns everything. So this act of giving is actually a spiritual practice, just like we remember how there are these um, cultural liturgies that are shaping us in a consumeristic society. The act of financial giving is actually a way that we reshape us. We redefine our lifestyle and say, we do not worship money in any way. I'm actually set free from money. I want to give this to you, God, because you own everything. And I don't ever want money to have a hold of me because you are my all-satisfying, all-providing God. And that should be front and center to this uh, spiritual rhythm in our lives. And if we don't actually have that, then it's very easy to become affected by this culture, which actually causes us to cling to money and causes us to value materialistic possessions over the spiritual riches in Christ. And so these are just a few of the prominent enticements of our culture, which lead us away from pure devotion to Christ because they are shaping us to give our devotion elsewhere. Like in Colossians 2, 8, Paul says, do not be taken captive by vain philosophy and empty deceit, which depends upon human traditions and the elemental forces and not upon Christ. So Paul is warning the Colossians, don't be taken captive by this world, by this culture, by vain philosophy and empty deceit, by the seduction of the world. Don't be taken captive by that because it will captivate you and you will be taken captive to that. Don't be taken captive by it because it simply depends upon human tradition and the elemental forces, and that word elemental forces is sometimes as basic principles. It's a word that means generally the kind of like ideologies of society that's kind of uh, like the cultural narrative of society. And that is media, materialism and money. Don't be taken captive by it. Don't be taken captive, but instead 
become captivated by Christ, become captivated by his majesty, become captivated again by how magnificent he is, by this all supreme, all sufficient savior. Because this cultural air that we breathe is full of empty deceit and seduction. And so this was the issue for the people at Thyatira. There was this seductive influence that was drawing them away from a life of pure devotion to Christ. And the reality is when, when there is no exclusive worship to Christ, then that makes room for all sorts of immorality. So sexual immorality comes about because we have not given ourselves into exclusive worship of Christ, where we see him in all of his majesty and purity. So when we don't, when we have misplaced devotion, Christ becomes small and insignificant because we've been captivated by something else. And then, of course, the large and significant voices of a sexualized culture become louder and louder to us. And they take us captive. They become more prominent and appealing. And so we give ourselves over to things like pornography or lust, these forms of sexual immorality that are all over because the reality is we have been taken captive by something else. And so the, the Christ of our salvation has become insignificant. And the significant voices of our culture become louder and louder and more appealing and enticing. And so this is why we need to reorient ourselves back. We need to reshape ourselves back to this God who, as we read out at the start, has eyes like flames of fire, piercing, caring about you, each and every one of you, caring about your purity, remembering that actually that blood on the cross that terrible, terrible death, that excruciating death was so that you would be set free from those captive or captivating voices of society so that you would actually be set free from that life of sin and of immorality and that you would come into the majesty of Christ where there is purity and there is peace. And of course, we will still stumble and fall, but we live in that place of grace. We remember that blood that was shed now, this, just as I finish, can be uh, a bit confusing for us. You might be thinking, well, should I just leave media altogether? If you want to do that, that's, I think that's fine. I don't think it's absolutely necessary. But it might be a bit confusing to think, well, what are these? What should I be leaving? And, and the point of all of this, I guess, is that it's not black and white. Like, this is not black and white. So there's not going to be three steps to a better life by avoiding this. And I kind of make it very easy for you. That's not the point. It actually takes great discernment as we think about practices in our lives that may be drawing us away from Christ. And so a simple question for us to ask just in our own time is just what are the cultural practices? What takes our time and might that be taking me away from pure devotion to Christ? What are the things that are quite prevalent in my life that are actually taking me away from pure devotion to Christ? Because the danger is when we are actually just ignorantly giving ourselves over to these things. That's where the danger is, because it's not black and white. 
The danger is when we just ignorantly think that everything is okay. We kind of take the passage of Paul to the pure, all things are pure, but that wasn't his point. His point was never to just ignorantly give ourselves over to every cultural practice. The point is to consciously have practices of reorientation in our lives that will actually help us to avoid this. So this is where that first uh, reflecting, remembering, and responding can actually be applied to this, and it should be a spiritual rhythm of our lives. So we can take that and apply it to cultural practices. So we reflect upon the cultural practice. We reflect upon our current state. Is this going to be good for us? We reflect upon both the external and internal witness. So externally, we think about what is this communicating to other people? So I remember when I I first came to Christ, I came out of a a lifestyle of a lot of very heavy drinking. um, And it was generally like every weekend, multiple times a week, um, just a lot of really um, binge drinking. And uh, then I, I... came to Christ and and slowly that started to change. But I actually thought, because I would still get invited out with my friends to these places and some of them were okay, but then actually I had to think, what is this communicating to them? Is this, is my involvement in this cultural practice in going out to Mooseheads, if anyone knows, I don't know if that's Stephen's still going, but that was a club that was in Canberra and it was, um, quite a sinister club, I guess. And I had to think, uh, though I would love to hang out with them, is my involvement in this actually communicating to them that nothing has changed in my life? Is it communicating to them that I can just add Jesus on and he doesn't ask anything of me. I can still go out with you guys and still drink and still have a great time. And for some people, like if you've never had a background of drinking and you go out with some friends, I think they'll actually be totally fine for you to go out within reason, of course. But for me, I believe that actually my involvement in that practice was not communicating a gospel message to them. And so I actually stopped going out. We remember the word of God. So we reflect upon the practice at hand. We remember the word of God. We remember what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, avoid even the appearance of evil. And finally, we respond in faithful obedience. 